0: Okay, why don't we stand as our custom? Let's read the Word of God beginning in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and I will dine with him, and he will be with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I am over, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please be seated. Well, today's a monumental sermon in that uh, we're going to be completing the last of uh, Jesus' personal message, messages to the seven churches. And as you can tell by the reading, uh, we're finishing off with Laodicea. Now, I often talk about what's unique about each church right off the hop. And so, what's unique about this one is that's the only church that received absolutely no words of commendation. For you young people going, what does commendation mean? It means praise. It's the only church that never received any praise of all, all the seven churches. Now, not only this, it was the only church that didn't even have a portion of faithful followers, people that he called a faithful remnant. Um, in Smyrna, for example, in the dead church, in chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, you have a few here that have not soiled your garments. You know, and uh, that was the same in Pergamum and Thyatira. Not everyone had followed along with the errors that the church had fallen into. But here, it seems that the pervasive attitude of the church was the same. And there was no, warn, uh, no message of praise for them. In fact, it was only a message of rebuke and one of the hardest rebukes of all the seven churches. Uh, Jesus actually says he's uh, basically so frustrated with them that he wants to spit them out of his mouth. Now, don't think of hawk and alugi when you think of that. Uh, spit in Greek is to puke. So he's basically saying this, Laodicea, you make me sick. You make me want to vomit. So I think we better listen up, because we do not want to be like the church in Laodicea. Now, as you know, I've always had the same outline, but some of you are new. But this is the outline for all seven churches I've used. I give every uh, outline to every church in this way. We speak about the church and the city. We speak about the correspondent. We speak about the commendation, the concern, the command, and the call to conquer. So let's talk about the city and the church. You can see Laodicea on the bottom right-hand corner. It's the farthest inland and the farthest away from the sea. What's interesting about this is today there's no urban center there. So a lot of the churches like Pergamum, the city still stands. Smyrna still stands, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but uh, Laodicea has nobody there anymore. Uh, there's ancient ruins and they're magnificent, but it's the only one of the few that has nothing, no city of urban uh, trade right now. And uh, they do have, though, incredible archaeological remains. And apparently, it's second only to Ephesus. I'm only going to show you two pictures because I could overwhelm you with, with all of them. But uh, here's an example of what you would see if you're in Laodicea, this, you know, uh-huh. this colonnade with these uh, pillars on the sides. So you can imagine what the original structure was, must have looked like. But one of the cool things, archaeologically, they found there is a marble block that had inscriptions on it containing laws pertaining to the water usage for the local residents. And so that's the water block that was on earth. And on it was various fines for disobeying water laws and also the various things they expected citizens to do. So Okotoks would fit very well into Laodicea because they have all these uses of water, which was foreign to me because when I grew up in the Northwest Territories, I didn't pay for any dumping fees. I did have to pay for a tree to cut it down. Um, I didn't have to, pay to do anything weird with my water. But anyway, who knew that 2,000 years ago, people were doing the same thing as Okotoks? But uh, yeah, so that was an unearthed um, thing. And there's pretty strong fines for breaking the water laws. And so uh, that was kind of a, a neat um, archaeological find. And so many people, many scholars and pastors you'll hear, think that that's the reason why he speaks about, I wish you were hot or cold, and I wish you were lukewarm, and things like that. He's referring a lot to the water that's going on there, and I'm going to talk about this a bit more in a second. But one of the things about the, the center, extra-biblical information, is that apparently we hold on to this loosely because it's not in the Bible, so you do with it what you may. But according to the scholars and the archaeologists, there were three notable industries in that area. They were known for textiles, especially black wool. They were known for its medical center, the production of ointments. And interestingly, their most famous one was an eye salve. An eye salve. And Jesus does later say, I'm going to give you eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see and so people think that he's playing off of the, the number one ointment in the medical center in that culture. And so it, would, it was a cure for some of the things you were going through. Um, another contributing factor for their prosperity um, in, uh, in Laodicea, because they were a rich place, uh, was their banking. Uh, Gordon Fee says it this way, they were the Swiss bankers of antiquity. And again, we see a lot of references in here to, God, or to Jesus talking about money and riches and so on. But apparently, they were so prosperous that when an earthquake hit them in AD 71, they refused financial aid from the Roman Empire to rebuild. They were actually able to, out of their own resources, rebuild their city. Now, we've already looked at two other cities in which that was not the case. In AD 17, an earthquake hit two other cities, and they actually accepted uh, Roman support for their rebuilding. And that's where their temples came out of, and, and the changing of their name, and so on, in honor of the emperors. But these guys were so rich. They didn't even need to have any Roman assistance. A professor uh, professor at Regent College, where I attend, uh, named Daryl Johnson, said this. At one point, the Jews in Jerusalem appealed to the Jews in Laodicea for help because they were in trouble financially. And the Laodicean Jews gave them 22.5 pounds of gold from their city banks. Now, 22.5 pounds of gold, uh, maybe some of you... Experts in here that do trades and stuff would know how much that is in today's dollar, but that's 2,000 years ago, man, and 22 pounds to alleviate the Jewish people. In terms of the church, what I really like about this church is we actually have biblical references for it. I haven't been able to say that since Ephesus, but we actually have biblical reference, and it comes from Colossians. In Colossians, I want you to read this to you. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings and Colossae, just so you know, was written about 60 to 62 AD. And Revelation is probably written about 90, so we're doing about 30 years different. And he says, uh, he sends his greetings, he, always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. So Epaphras, who supposedly founded the church in Colossae, that's what we, we think from the New Testament text, has also got his hand in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And so people think that he maybe even founded that church as well. But it gets better. It says, uh, our dear friend Luke, the doctor who wrote Acts, uh, and Demas send his greetings. Give my greetings to some of the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. I love that because Genesis' house started in a house. And we were there for about five or six years, before we outgrew it and we moved. But again, just get your head out. Don't think that the people in the Roman Empire went to big buildings for church. They met in houses, and it was little conglomerates here and there, and so we see this girl named Nympha, which had a house church in Laodicea. But after this, it says, this letter had been read to you. See that it is also read to the the church of the Laodiceans, that you in turn read letter from Laodicea. So Paul is basically saying this like, to Epaphras: like, make sure you share the letters that have been written to each church with each other. So they were they were like in cahoots, and they were getting each other's letters, and they knew what was going on. And so it's kind of cool that Paul and this guy Epaphras, his missionary buddy, are kind of overseeing the churches. And I wanted to show you a picture on the map just to show you how close they are. Laodicea in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll see Colossae and Hierapolis really close to one another. Uh, They're just a few kilometers apart, so there's a little small triangle. And that's why they were so close and could be taken care of by the um, well why, by Epaphras, could sort of minister to all three congregations so easily. All right, let's look at the correspondent. He says in 14, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Let's look at what he means by the Amen and the faithful and true witness. This is similar to the Philadelphian church, and that's a description that abandons the vision of chapter 1. Remember, Jesus appears to John and gives him a vision of what he looks like, and he had feet like burnished bronze and a, a sword with like a two-edged sword out of his mouth. There's no description of that here, and that's not found in that in that in image. However, it is rooted in the Old Testament. The, and of course, you know what how we use the word amen, right? It's something we tag on at the end of grace. And in the original Greek language, it just means in truth or with certainty, and so be it. So when we pray at dinner, we say a prayer, and then we say amen. And what we mean is, okay, God, so be it. May this be certain for what we've just said. And so when Jesus, ever in the New Testament, you see him saying, truly, truly, I say to you, you've seen that a lot when he talks, truly, truly, I say to you that. He's actually saying, amen, amen, I say to you that. With certainty, so be it as I speak to you. But here's what's neat about this title. That's not the use of it here. The Amen is actually a title used for God. A title used for God. And it's a title to show that within his character, he's absolutely trustworthy, faithful, and true. Consider Isaiah 65, 16. He says, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. What's cool about the God of truth? If you look up the Hebrew word for truth, it is amen. Those of you who look it up and like to do word studies, God of truth is amen in Hebrew. So it's a title for God and Jesus is putting it on himself. He's saying, I am deity, and in my character, I possess nothing but faithfulness and truthfulness. I am the Amen. A stark contrast to the unfaithfulness and untruthfulness of the hypocrisy that the Laodiceans are living. And he wants to say to them, you need to listen up. Because if I'm faithful and true, my diagnosis of you is bang on. And I can see you right through everything that's going on in your church. But he also calls himself the beginning of creation. Now, this word's fascinating because beginning can mean first in sequence, or it can mean source of, originator of. Well, in this context, it's actually the word source, the word arche in Greek. And so God uses this of himself, and you can cross-reference this in your Bible, in Revelation 21.6. He says, God says this, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning from the end. Same word, RK, meaning source. Because God doesn't have a beginning in terms of first and sequence. He's eternal. So when Jesus says, I'm the beginning of creation, he says, I'm the source. I'm responsible for it. <laughs> I'm not just the first and sequence of it. Really cool word study for those of you who get Jehovah Witnesses on your doorstep. Because they will say to you that, this, uh, that Jesus is the beginning of creation; he's the firstborn. See, he's 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 a uh, he's not deity. Well, if you look up the word, I just pull him to Revelation from now on and say, well, look what God says about himself. Do you think God has a beginning? they will say no. I say, well, look what Jesus attributes to himself—the exact same word. I brought them up because I ran into them that full high the other day, so that's why I thought of them on my sermon. But uh, anyway, yeah. Okay, so by applying this title, again, he's reminding the church there, everything in creation has its source in me. So again, if that's the case, we better heed to what I'm saying. So let's look at the problem in verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, or sorry, cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Before we get into the spiritual applications of what Jesus is saying here, I want to give you a heads up as to two possibilities of the context of why Jesus uses hot and cold and lukewarm language. um, In Laodicea, which you could see back here again, it was close to Hierapolis and Colossae. Apparently, Hierapolis Her- had hot springs there that were used for medicinal purposes, kind of like Fairmont in our, in our day. And in uh, Colossae, they had fresh, cold water. Laodicea, as people say, had poor water sources, so had to have their water piped in. And so by the time I got there, it was warm and would bring clay deposits with it, and it was gross to drink. Okay, so that's some of the people. What some people think, Uh, I don't actually think that's what's going on. I mean, but again, it doesn't really matter um, because uh, it's it's an option, right? But I would say that probably what I think is going on is actually referring to the common banqueting practices that would happen in that culture. Now, what would happen in Roman culture is you'd go to these giant feasts, and they would last for hours, last for hours, and or days, whatever, and you would just gorge yourself. Now what happened was you'd you'd get cold drinks or hot drinks as part of the treats for the night all right so a nice cappuccino or a nice cold bottle of wine but those were the treats because you ate so much you had to make room for the next meal so guess what they served to make you barf up your food so you could eat the next meal lukewarm water those of you who like milk right a nice hot steamed milk great cold milk awesome Anybody like Dreaming King, room temperature, like milk on their cereal? I don't know if you are. If you are, you're just different than I am, but I'm not built for that kind of thing, right? Or come in from sledding. Here's a like a lukewarm hot chocolate, well, hot chocolate for you, right? It's like, what are you giving me this for? I'm freezing. It's got no use to me, right? But in that culture, yeah, lukewarm water was used to make you bark. Now, the reason why I think that's probably more likely what's going on is because Jesus says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. So either, but either way, let's say we didn't know or don't have that background and both are wrong or both are right, it doesn't matter. We could still figure out what he means just from reading the context, can't we? Let me show you something really important here. If I were to ask you this question, would you prefer hot spirituality or cold spirituality and, and getting a report cut on it, what would you pick? Every one of you say, I want hot spirituality because that must mean loyalty and commitment to God. And that's the way it's often preached. But I can show you from the context, that's actually not what's being said. That's not what's being said at all. He actually says this. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. In other words, you know what? If you are cold, that's good in my books. If you were hot, that's good in my books. Why? Because cotton and cold represent extremes. They're both talked about in a positive way, not a negative way. So he's not saying, I would rather you not be a Christian than to be lukewarm. Like, where's God's heart in that? And that's just ridiculous. He's actually saying, I wish that you were, I wish you you, you were full on in an extreme, because both of them... De- uh, depict loyalty and, and spiritual fervor and passion for God. Both do. There, there would be no rebuke if they were cold. The, the rebuke is because they're lukewarm. And that's super, super important for us to see in the text. So therefore, if hot and cold represent loyalty and commitment, then lukewarm means that these people in Laodicea were Complacent. They had spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. Christianity for them was just ho-hum. Just go through the motions, doing my part. Spiritual apathy. I want to show you a a quote from uh, Gordon Fee's commentary who quoted another man by the name of Craig Koester, he said this. Perhaps there's no bigger crisis in the churches of the Western world than this one, where the church seems to be full of fans rather than followers of Jesus. Indeed, if being a Christian were a crime, it is doubtful whether there would be enough evidence to indict the many of us who have settled into a Christianity of mediocrity Rather than a burning passion to be Christ's own people in this broken world, we tend to have just enough religion to make us basically inconspicuous in a world of self centeredness, greed, and broken relationships. Question was what was contributing to this in Laodicea? Well, it was their affluence. Their affluence. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. But you don't know that you're actually wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. If you were part of the church in Laodicea, it would have been hard to distinguish between you and the members of the Roman culture. And the problem wasn't with their wealth per se. It was how their wealth affected their attitude towards Christ and the way they lived their lives. See, they saw themselves as being wealthy, and they saw themselves, therefore, as needing nothing, including the Lord. They didn't see him as being relevant anymore because they had everything they wanted. The church had become proud and were living with a pervasive sense of self-sufficiency. Their motto would go something like this, Lord, I'm grateful for the offer of forgiveness and your salvation, but I got this. Thank you for saving me, but in life, I got this. The crazy thing was, is that they were living a life of the North American dream, a life of comfort, and everything was going well. And so they measured their spiritual temperature in that. But Jesus had a different diagnosis. He says, I actually see you as being wretched and miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. The problem is here, there was a different diagnosis from what they did for themselves for what Jesus saw in them. And their material prosperity had blinded them to their true spiritual condition. Now, this would have been a shock to the Laodiceans because from their perspective, they may have seen themselves as rich and thought everything was great. But Jesus says, you're actually impoverished. You may be rich materially, but you're spiritually bankrupt. And that was very different than the church in Smyrna, 200 kilometers away. Remember the church in Smyrna to the the west near the coast? In chapter 2 and verse 9, listen to the diagnosis of them. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty materially, but you are rich spiritually. He was not calling the church in Laodicea to poverty. It's not a call to poverty. I know there's some that believe that you have to be impoverished to be close to God. That's not actually actually the case. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Luke 5. Levi, the tax collector, is called by Jesus into ministry. It says, quote-unquote, he left everything behind. So you would expect a call to poverty. And Next verse, and he threw a banquet in his house. (laughs) Okay, and he invited all his friends. So he left everything behind, but he still had a house and threw a banquet. So you can still you don't have to be in poverty to be close to, to be loved by the Lord in terms of how you use money. He also wasn't saying that rich people made him sick. King David was filthy rich, Abraham was filthy rich, Job was filthy rich, Mary, Mar- Martha, and Lazarus, who always put their house up to the disciples, were wealthy. She poured a year's worth of perfume on his body to anoint him. In Ephesus, they were filthy rich. Ephesus of a rich church all the teaching we're going to look at we're going to look at a verse later but a verse from 1 Timothy 6 um, there's tons about money and what to do with, with as rich people with money he also wasn't saying poor people made them happy it's possible to be really poor and have no interest in the Lord Jesus Christ so what is he saying what is he saying he's basically saying this you have to be careful that wealth doesn't bring you to a place of self-sufficiency. Wealth doesn't bring you to a place of self-sufficiency where you say, Lord, I don't need you. I don't need anything. I got it all. And you seek to do life independent of Christ. Not only that, a place where your wealth makes you apathetic due to, your, due to all that you own and the comforts that you have. I never. There's a phrase that we throw around our house once in a while. It goes like this, uh, the more you own, the more it owns you. The more you own, the more it owns you. Okay, So as you accumulate things, it means that you have to put time into maintaining those things. Well, if, if there's things that you have to maintain, and it's going to compete against certain things that the Lord wants you to do in terms of kingdom ministry, it's going to be a toss-up, and you're going to abandon what the Lord wants you to do. And so you have to be very careful when you own stuff, because you have to learn how to balance still living out the Christian life and, and um, you know, maintaining and being a good steward of stuff, but also you know, not letting it control you and dominate you and putting your hope and value in it. And the New Testament, clear that money can be a, spir- a spiritual disadvantage. Having it can be a spiritual disadvantage and pose a great danger to our spiritual health. I wanna read from 1 Timothy 6 now because this is exactly the situation in Ephesus where there's rich people, so Paul gives them really good instruction. He says, but godliness without contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who wanna get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now here's the key, command those who are rich in this present world, and it's not going to be to get rid of your riches. (laughs) He says, command those who are present in this world who are rich not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. Don't worry God, I need nothing. Like Laodicea, including you, (laughs) which is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Again, the the big message is here, where do you put your hope? Where do you put your trust? Beware of the illusion that security of finances can give you. He says, put it in the Lord. Don't let our prosperity blind us to how much we need Christ. And that is the one good thing about COVID the last two years. And I'm just speaking from a personal testimony. If I'm grateful to the Lord for one thing in this whole two years, is that it's like sort of woken me up to any potential of spiritual apathy in terms of like living for comfort and living for leisure and putting my hope in this world. You know? Like, I mean, I just heard that the grocery stores right now, because of everything going on, it's hard to get things. Like, there's sold out of crisper chips and sold out of cereal and stuff. The shelves are empty. That's who, who would have thought of that in North America? But if you live with that reality, maybe the Lord's Prayer becomes more of a reality for you. When you Remember, remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our daily bread. Not, honey, can you go to North Wales and get another loaf of bread? Okay, got this, Lord. Right? It's been awesome in terms of like really, like for me personally, I can't speak for you, but me personally, really prioritizing what's important. What's important. In Psalm 49, I never uh, re- recognized this psalm before, um, but it's a great one. Listen to this. I condensed it to half of the, of the psalm. Paraphrase, but I love this. Here, here's why you can't put your hope in riches and why you put it in the Lord. Why should I fear when trouble comes, when enemies surround me? They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and see the grave, right? <laughs> you can, I don't care if you're Donald Trump or Connor McDavid, you can't buy your freedom in terms of salvation. You can't buy your way into glory and being with God in heaven. You can't do it. No money can redeem you. Those who are wise must finally die, just like the foolish and senseless leaving all their wealth behind. This is probably where the whole, you can't take it to heaven in a U-Haul phrase comes from. The grave is their eternal home where they will stay forever. But as for me, God will redeem my life. He will snatch me from the power of the grave. What a wake up call to the Western church, the North American wealthy church. So, what does Jesus do with individuals like this, or even like church congregations like this? Well, it's pretty awesome. Do you know he doesn't abandon them? You'd think he'd want to abandon someone like that. He doesn't abandon them whatsoever. Instead of running away from a church like that, he, run to, he runs towards them in grace, mercy, and love. We pick this up in the command in verse 18. I advise you to buy for me gold and refined by fire so that you may become rich. In white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. What Jesus reveals to them here is the same thing he does for us. Basically, the two, a two-step process, if you will, and how to be restored with the Lord when you've gone astray. The first thing he says in verse 18 is, I advise you to buy from me. I advise you to buy from me. And look at the things he offers, right? Like um, the clothing and the, and the eye salve and stuff, p- perhaps playing off of the culture and the prosperity and what they're known for. But of course, buying isn't in the literal sense. He just said in Psalm 49, you can't buy your way to forgiveness in terms of financial. It's obvious, right? The buying is figurative for obtaining and receiving God's grace his forgiveness is figurative for that and being impoverished and naked and blind are spiritual terms in the bible for being in sin and he's saying i can provide a way out i can provide remedies for that so what does this actually mean practically how do you actually buy from god what does he mean when he says come to me for these things ultimately You have to come clean with him. It means you have to confess. If he says, come by for me, and you're in sin, you have to come and say, I want from you what you have to offer, but I have to confess that I've messed up. Psalm 32, verse 5, David says this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Come and confess your sin, and he will clothe you. The second step is repentance. He says, I discipline those I love, and so therefore repent. Remember the definition of repentance we looked at a few weeks ago from one of the churches. Repentance is, is not just a change in mind, but it's a change of mind in both principle and practice. Principle and practice. So it's, it starts in the head, but has to move out into the way you live. And that's why in verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. He's looking at how they're living, their deeds. It's reflective of what they believe, and, who, and but he's ultimately measuring what they believe and what they think by how they're living. So repentance, of course, for us involves a life change, a life change that lines up with loyalty to him. But what I love about this it's said in a plea of love. It's said in a plea of love, he says, I love, I discipline those I love. So he's speaking to genuine Christian people who are going wayward, but is his grace extending to them? So I don't know where we're at right now, and if this message is speaking to you, if you're feeling condemned, that's not from the Lord. Conviction is, but not condemnation. Condemnation says there's no way out. And, I, and you get labeled by your sin. Conviction says, I love you, and I'm telling you this for your own good, but I offer you redemption in me. I can offer you forgiveness. Now, his love is really evident, especially from verse 20. Let's read that together. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will dine with him and he with me now this is one of the most famous bible verses probably ever written and there's even artwork and pictures done of this with a guy you know with a one-way door and he's got a handle and jesus is on the outside and so on now this verse is unfortunately very misunderstood and used out of context all the time people will use it evangelistically in other words they'll say this is jesus's invitation to salvation He's knocking on the heart of your the door of your heart, and you have to open it to him. Here's the problem: He's talking to believers. He already said, "I discipline those I love." They're already in relationship with him. It's not a salvation call. It's a re, it's a call to renewed fellowship. To be in community with him again, and to be walking in step with him and food is always a picture of intimacy in the bible always and he's saying if you repent and you confess he's like you and i can dine together you can dine together it's a picture of fellowship really awesome picture here right because the timing of the fellowship too is not a, it's not an eternal one he's not promising you can have fellowship and dine with me in the future in heaven it's now if you repent now, you can dine with me now. So it's a, it's a physical reality here on this earth in this present time, this communion with him. Then again, I love this picture, all this sort of like food and mouth and all this kind of digestive system thing going on in this, in this letter because here's an awesome picture of Jesus Christ. The same Jesus that wants to puke up this church is the same Jesus that wants to invite them to, in for dinner. The same Jesus that wants to vomit them out is the same Jesus that wants them to come and dine with him. That's the God of grace that we serve. But ultimately, I think, church, we learn the root cause of lukewarmness. Is affluence a a, a contributing factor? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in their case, it was. And but we also know, that according to 1 Timothy, rich people are, are instructed to be generous. So you can be rich and still be a, a, a Jesus follower. But here I think we discover the, the root cause of lukewarmness. If he's standing at the door, knocking from the outside, that means the root cause of, war, uh, of lukewarmness is exclusion of Jesus from your life. You've excluded him in various aspects of your life. Forgiven, yes, but not invited in to every aspect of how you do your daily walk. Have you invited the Lord into your family? Any family problems? Is he standing outside the door or is he inside the door because you opened it to him? How about work? How about marriage? How about having troubles with your children? about areas of sexuality? Maybe it has to do with church attendance, being in community. How about your fears, your insecurities, your depression? He's standing at the door, knocking, but there's only a handle one way and you have to open it to him. But the God of grace wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. And what I like about this, it's an an invitation to the whole church. But every individual within that church has to make a personal decision. So it's a corporate call, but he stands at the door of everyone's heart and knocks. That means that if there's like 80 people, 60 could open the door and 20 couldn't or might not. Uh, So I don't know what he's speaking to you about right now and where he's calling you to come back to him. But there's a door that he wants to be he wants you to open to him now if the laodiceans conquer and overcome their lukewarmness there's a promise of incredible reward we'll finish with the call to conquer he who overcomes i will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sit down with, his, or sorry, as I sat down with my father on his throne, he who has a near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The throne, of course, is very obvious what it symbolizes. It's the place of a king. It's the place of royal honor. And this is going to become the dominant image of revelation going on from now on. In chapter 4, we're going to be invited into heaven to the throne room of God where the world is praising him. That's where we're invited into, and revelation takes place now from the throne room of God from here to the rest of the book, or rest of the letter. Jesus is saying, if you overcome this lukewarmness and you become hot for me or cold for me, like in other words, become extremely loyal in everything I'm calling you to, I will give you this reward you will get to sit with me in the place of highest honor. Sit with me in my throne beside me as I reign as king. But what I love even more, or just as strongly, is he says, if you overcome, you will overcome in the way that I also overcame and sat down with my father. So when Jesus overcame the temptations of this world and went to the cross for us and died for a sin and went to be with God, he says, you can share the same intimacy in heaven, with me, as I do with my father. It's going to be absolutely identical in terms of what we're being offered there, What a tremendous picture of victory and something to hope for. As you know, we always do lessons after my sermon, and I usually put them up and we discuss them. We're going to do something different today. We're due for communion. We do it once a month. And so I thought, instead of going into a dialogue right away and going through the lessons, why don't we use this time to prepare our hearts for communion? No communion message I could give would be more could prepare you more from, from what this has to say to the church. And I don't know what the Lord's been saying to you as I've been talking through this and where he's been encouraging you and where maybe he's been convicting you. But if you feel in any way you've been lukewarm, In your faith this is an opportunity for renewal this is opportunity to commune with God and be in fellowship once again to a great a greater degree than you ever have been and communion is a picture of that as remember his death and resurrection and what he did for us and so what we're going to do is we're going to just spend some time spend some time together as families anything we need to say to one another in confession or we want a pri- private prayer with the Lord about our recommitment to him. I would ask you to do that. We give you thanks for your word. It is powerful and uh, transforming. May all of us, Lord, uh, not have a hard heart towards you and open the door for your grace and mercy to flow. Thank you for your offer of not only salvation, but your offer of fellowship. And we love you. In Christ's name, amen.